everybody, and welcome back to episode five of the SAM podcast about current and novel approaches to sepsis detection in the emergency department, co-sponsored in part by Beckman, Coulter, and Biu Miriu. We are back with our three outstanding guests from episode four. We have Dr. Fahim Gurgis, we have Dr. Lauren Black, and Dr. Kylie Graham. And so episode five is essentially an ask the authors in which we have, again, gotten these three outstanding researchers to join us to basically talk about their research in the sort of the sepsis space, biomarker space. And we're going to get right into it. So Dr. Gerges, could you start by telling us a little bit about some of the background stuff that you work on and then maybe transitioning into anything you've been working on recently that's got you excited? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity, Rob. So yeah, I think the thing that has been really exciting that we've been working on collectively quite a bit is phenotyping our sepsis patients using cholesterol and lipids. And so a couple of years ago, we published a paper where essentially we looked at a lot of clinical variables in combination with cholesterol levels and some other lipid biomarkers. And as everybody knows right now, the big thing with sepsis is trying to figure out the subgroups or the subclasses of patients that might be different. And so Essentially, our approach, kind of the novelty to it to some degree was, can we take cholesterol and lipids and add those to clinical biomarkers and discern a subgroup of patients? And, and we did, and we had this, this one group we call the hypolipoprotein group, which kind of a long word, but essentially it just means that they had lower levels of cholesterol and a lesser degree of protection from some of these antioxidant, anti-inflammatory lipids. And they were sicker patients in general. So they had higher organ failure scores, higher endothelial dysfunction, and higher mortality. And so what we've been doing recently is sort of following that out kind of to the next steps. And that's where we got involved with Kylie and and we've all been working together to sort of figure out using a multi-omics approach, what exactly is going on in this subtype of patients and can we potentially link that to new treatments and drugs that could actually be used on a particular phenotype. And So to that end, we're trying to figure out, you know, how do you recognize these people clinically? And if you did, what would you do with that information and what drugs could you potentially use to treat that group of patients? Oh, interesting. That's the holy grail in sepsis right now, I think, is these different subgroups. And and something that I was, I guess, a question I have as I've read through some of your stuff is, you know, describing these phenotypes and thinking about how you treat them differently from amongst the different phenotypes. Is it possible that different genotypes give rise to similar phenotypes such that even though they phenotypically appear similar, they might not all be amenable to sort of the same treatment approach? Does that make sense? Yeah, it doesn't. I'll let Kylie chime in too, but I think my sense of this is that, I mean, this is why we're sort of looking at it collectively. And that is sort of why I think we're looking at using machine learning approaches to kind of discern those groups of patients. And so one of the things we're looking at is gene expression patterns in combination with specific lipids to understand sort of what pathways are going on. And so, but what you're saying is sort of like a discordance between their genotype and their phenotype. I think so, but what we're trying to do is look at it holistically so that we're looking at those two things in view together, if that makes sense. And so really the biology and their clinical presentation are being looked at uniformly when we're doing the analysis and not separately. But I'll stop there. I mean, I'm curious Kylie's thoughts on that question too. 
Yeah. So I actually do a lot of work in the cancer genomic space. And what we found with cancer studies is that something like 10% of patients clinically present in a way that does not match up with the genotype. So there's about 10% of patients where when we look at their genotype data, we say, you know what, this patient actually is going to respond and progress more like these other patients. You do see groups where you'll have one phenotype, one clinical phenotype, and we look at the genomic data and see that there actually are more than one genomic groups in there that maybe should be treated differently. That's not always true. I think more commonly what you'll see is that we can understand why the clinical presentation is different because of differences in their genomes. Okay, I see what you're saying. And then how does, I mean, I guess the next question is, and maybe Lauren, you could speak about this a little bit, because I think this is what some of your K23 work is maybe addressing is, you know, I mean, I know it's, it's looking at sort of effective vasopressors in sepsis, but what do you think about this in terms of the sort of the overlap between pharmacogenomics and phenotypes and untangling some of these issues? Yeah, happy to jump in here. So a fair amount of my work looks at septic shock heterogeneity from a big clinical data perspective, and then a smaller amount uses some pharmacogenomic data. So it's kind of a combination of, of all of those things. I got into the space in the same way that many other people have, is that I had this question that I thought was great for my KL2. And I think the real problem was I was assuming all patients were going to respond the same way. And so I pretty much found out that my question was probably flawed because not every person responds the same way. And I think that's when we look at this clinical trial data, you know, I'm certainly far from the first person that said this, but I think some of these medications and novel therapeutics probably work. We just don't know who they work in. And we really don't know what is defining these subgroups. And we certainly know it's more complicated than traditional statistics were telling us. It's not just like age greater than or less than 65, for example. And it's not just a certain comorbid disease, et cetera. And so I think delving into some of this, I, I think there's a lot of promise for clinical data to feed back into in real time. And that's what I would like to see the future of, of my work do is can we identify people based on clinical data? Can we identify certain phenotypes? And then can we identify them real time or within the first few hours of their emergency department visit? if some of these things are running in the background, for example. And I'm a bit oversimplifying some of that, but I think it'd be really, I think the future steps of this work is, let's say, and you know, there's many groups of people working on phenotyping, endotyping, subgroups, et cetera. But I think what I think would be particularly cool is, as we think about how this work influences the clinical space. I mean, I think for some of that, that requires us to do some of this in a little more, for lack of a better term, real time. And I think that'll be a, a combination of clinical data. And perhaps, you know, there's a bunch of novel things that Fahim can speak to better than I can, where, you know, people are real time doing some of these more biologic analyses in the, in the emergency department potentially as well. I don't know if that exactly answers your question though. I think I get where you were going with it. And that was kind of bringing it back to Fahim. That was sort of the next uh -huh. round of question I kind of wanted to, or the next path I wanted to go down is you identify these phenotypes. Is this something that ultimately that's the idea is that this is, this is going to be done in real time when someone kind of hits the door? Or is this something, the follow-up question would be too, like in terms of these phenotypes that exist, what are the ramifications of these phenotypes beyond the first 24 hours, seven days, once you get over the septic event, like what comes next? 
Yeah. So I think, well, just kind of to go to your, your first part of that question is like, what are you going to do or how are you going to, how are you going to identify these phenotypes? So I think to give credit where credit is due, others have tried to do this with more success or quite a bit of success. One of the people who did this was Hector Wong, who's at Cincinnati and did a lot of this in pediatric ICU sepsis patients. And he came up with a panel of genes that he found was predictive in pediatric septic shock patients. And what he did over time was he refined that set of genes more and more after multiple iterations and analyses to where he kind of got like a final set of genes that were actually kind of a minimal set that he could actually apply clinically. And so that's something that's been done. And I think also Carolyn Caffey's group, she's at UCSF and she does this with ARDS, which is I would say if, if you're going to study a field and relate it to sepsis, that's doing really great work with, with phenotyping. I think ARDS is probably the most relatable because the disease is also extremely heterogeneous, right? You got a lot of different causes of ARDS. Obviously, sepsis is the most common, but there's aspiration, there's trauma, there's many of those things. And Calfi's group has done some really cool stuff, creating parsimonious models to discern their phenotypes as well, where they use a lot of biology in their initial model, but then they sort of riddle it down to the last few things that they can use to sort of discern phenotypes. And, and right now our group is doing something similar and we're using clinical data, including cholesterol levels to determine, can we find these, these patients in the clinical arena? And so bridging from there, what do you do with that information? I think that's where understanding a little bit better what the mechanisms at play are can give you a sense of what could work. And so I might use as an example, the adrenal trial, which was a steroids trial and septic shock. And they published a follow-on paper where they looked at expression patterns and they found that a particular gene, if you give them steroids, patients got better faster if they had a high expression of that gene. And they similarly found another gene that if you if they had a high expression of this gene, if you gave them steroids, they actually got worse. They didn't recover from shock as quickly. And so I think that was a very nice example of how do you use some of these approaches to actually say, okay, in a clinical arena, I can look at gene expression or whatever it is, particular biomarker to tell me, yeah, should I give drug A or should I not give drug A? Or, or should I give drug A or should I give drug B instead? And so I, I really think that's kind of where this is all going. It loops back to what we were talking about before, where you start with as much data as you can possibly find. And as you understand more about what's going on, you can narrow it down to the things that really matter. So you can start by doing, you know, sequencing, which can be a little expensive and time consuming and end up saying, okay, now we know what are the clinical factors that correlate with this or that have a relationship with this. So we can know from their clinical records eventually without having to do any sequencing or maybe do targeted sequencing, which is very fast and know right away who should get what treatment or this is really where I defer to the human Lauren, because I have no idea what happens when we hit the clinic, but. I like to think that our models are making it better and faster, right? And I do think a lot of this work can tell us more about the disease or the syndrome because sepsis, you know, is still a syndrome we don't understand completely. And I think a lot of this work both helps us understand that. And then it's in varying degrees of closer to or further away from going back into the clinical environment. And I think a lot of this work has some potential for something, I think, Behem is better suited to talk about, but some predictive prognostic enrichment that I think a lot of this work can help us work towards in the future. Maybe that's a good springboard for my next question. I'm not sure who to, who I would ask it to all of you because you each have different areas of expertise or different domain expertise. Starting with, for example, Fahim, you're talking about this hypolipoprotein phenotype. 
So my question is, how much of this is an acute phenotype in the setting of sepsis and how much of it relates to your baseline state of health before you got sick? I guess some of what I think about is with this gene expression profiles in sepsis, do we know what, quote, normal would be? And does that vary from, and this kind of goes back a little bit to what you were saying on our previous episode, Kylie, about even patients without sepsis sort of inform some of our study of sepsis, but is there any role? I guess the first thing is, you know, what are the relationships between how you, do these phenotypes just develop when you get sick and, or like, how does this relate to just your baseline gene expression? And is there any role to ultimately somehow profile patients to understand who's like most susceptible to becoming septic or having developing ARDS when they get septic or developing PICs or something like that? Yeah. So I I think that's a a great question and it's a complicated answer, right? And I think I'll stick to lipids because that's what I study. But I think several years ago with Henry Wang, we published a paper where we looked at baseline cholesterol levels in the regards cohort, which is a cohort of about 30,000 people who are being followed for stroke risk factors in Southeast. We showed that in that paper that having low LDL actually increased your risk of sepsis over several years. And it was pretty cool because it was a longitudinal cohort and these people were followed for uh, for several years. And Henry's group did a great job figuring out sepsis hospitalizations after their initial enrollment. And so that was a nice study to kind of give us a signal there. And and other groups have later sort of followed up that work to figure out, is, is that really a real signal? And is it specifically directly related to LDL or is there something else. And so some have sort of narrowed it down more to like LDL receptor and potentially pathogen clearance and sepsis and and LDL not necessarily being the actual piece that makes a difference. So for lipids, I think I would, I would say that was a little bit of a clue, but I think the baseline levels are less important than what they're doing acutely. And so when I've made comparisons across septic patients Looking at disease severity and looking at, again, subtypes, just getting back into that discussion, I think is more valuable than comparing what they're doing at baseline. So there have been some studies where they've looked at baseline cholesterol levels and how they relate to when you're actually septic, and they don't really relate all that well. But you see really dysregulated levels of cholesterol. Sometimes you'll see HDLs of single digits and We've even had LDL by kind of the equation be even like negative numbers and really sick septic patients. And so to me, that tells us something's going on. We're just trying to figure out exactly what it is. And I think comparing across subgroups or disease severity classes is probably what's going to give us a better sense of what's actually going on biologically and is a little bit more important than what they look like at baseline, although I'm sure that's going to factor in as well. And some of the ancestry work that Kylie's doing will probably speak to that. So, so maybe maybe it does, and I just don't know it. But that's kind of my approach right now. That's the dream, right? Someone walks into the clinic, and we know exactly what's going to happen to them and about when it's going to happen and what we can do to make them get healthy. Yeah, so you're saying that that's coming soon, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's say in our lifetimes. <laughs> I'll dream it. <laughs> I mean, I think from a clinician perspective, these subgroups make sense for sepsis. And I think ultimately most of this audience is probably clinicians. And like Fahim and Kyle have said, there's a lot of other people doing this work. I mean, Christy Moore published a a massive sepsis phenotypes paper. But I think when you think about this as a clinician, it's not that hard to recognize that you treat the 80-year-old female who has multifocal pneumonia and congestive heart failure 
we probably should be treating her slightly differently than we treat the 20 something year old with pilo who maybe let it go on too long and ended up in, in septic shock or something. And I think that those patients may respond differently to therapeutics has a lot of face validity or may need different treatments has a lot of face validity. And I think probably the heterogeneity there is, is a combination both of things that we can learn about from clinical data as, as well as these multiomics data that really enhance our understanding. Interesting. Yeah. And I guess something else I wonder about a fair amount, and I was sort of maybe hinting at this with some of the questions that I'd ask you, Fahim, but this sort of idea of gene environment interactions, you know, there's some data out there where people have estimated that a long-term states of health or disease have a lot more to do with environmental and social factors than just interactions with the healthcare system or things that happen just when you get sick. And so I'm interested in what you guys think about that as it, you know, how it pertains to your work with lipids. And and I know that maybe that's a little bit redundant based on the question I had just asked, but I guess, how do we untangle some of these relationships? Are there things that in emergency medicine, right? We tend to think of like the patient, we start thinking about them when they show up and then we admit them somewhere. And then we're like, all right, great job. Or, you know, maybe we could have done this a little bit better, but I guess I, I do wonder whether we could maybe do a better job as a specialty or as researchers. And I don't mean that in any sort of pejorative way or to de- you know denigrate anybody, but to kind of think about some of these things as we ask new research questions, design new studies, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's another good one. I think I heard somebody eloquently use the word exposome, right? So like you're thinking of all the things that these people kind of are exposed to over time. And I think it is a huge deal with sepsis because one of the biggest areas of research is sort of sepsis readmissions and sepsis recidivism, right? And and if you look at that, we have a, we have a study going on at our shop looking at this, and Liz DeVos is leading it at UF Jacksonville, and others have done this work as well. But what we realized trying to figure out why patients get sepsis over and over again is that it is hugely dependent on social factors, and that's not the only thing, obviously for morbid conditions and things like that. But if you get pneumonia and you spend a week in the hospital and then they discharge you with more antibiotics and you never get it, or you never get follow-up or you have a wound and it never gets cared for because you're not able to access that kind of care or any care, really, you end up back in the emergency department, you end up admitted again. And so one of the signals we saw in her data was that actually I think we saw that patients with public insurance like Medicaid and things like that were readmitted more often, but they were less severe in terms of the kind of illness they had. And I think a lot of that spoke to access to care issues, right? Like where they would actually potentially get better, but they don't have great access. And so they just end up hospitalized again. And so for sure, that is a contributing factor. And I think the way to really discern that is to collect that data, right? You're never going to know if you don't get that data. And so there's a lot of social determinants of health evaluations and different types of scoring things and even qualitative studies that need to be done to really get down to that and understand how it how it contributes. Kylie or Lauren, any thoughts on that? I have other questions. If not, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, that's a constant stress for me with the genomic data is and the other kinds of omic data is I'm not getting that kind of information. I know I'm not, and I know it's a big problem. And it's one of those things where there's not a lot I can do. So we just try to account for it as much as possible and hope for a future where that's not an issue for us. When you say you don't have that data, you mean like those are not data points in the data sets that you currently have, that kind of thing? 
most of the data sets that we can, I mean, we can get access to a lot of them, but I'm not going to get a lot of information about the patients themselves. So I can pull a fair amount of it out of their genomes, but I don't get things like what zip code they live in or how much their family makes, or are they able to take time off work? All of these things that I know have a big impact. I can't see that data. So it is what it is. Should there be a bigger role for including genomic data? For example, like we have a biobank here in Detroit that we're, and we recruit, you know, certain types of patients of, you know, the conditions of interest, you know, because limited resources, but should we be consenting everybody to genomic sequencing for stuff like this? Is that kind of help in the setting of, you know, we also were collecting, we have zip code data, which is tied to a lot of demographic stuff, environmental stuff. Is pulling in genomic data going to be helpful now or in the future? That kind of data is so invaluable to me. So much of the data of the patients that are getting sequenced come from very specific parts of our society. And we're missing out a lot. Everyone misses out. I, I We show this in our preprint. Literally everyone benefits when we have a better picture of human variability. And that includes all different things, all of the demographic information. So, I mean, I don't think I've ever said no to more data from people it's something you consistently say is like, yeah. give me all I, the data. I totally agree. And I think Liz Voss's study really opened a lot of, you know, my eyes on how much other data should we be collecting in our biobanks. And I think the more of this, the more social data we can collect, do you have a car? Do you have kids at home that you're responsible, that you're the sole caregiver for, et cetera, et cetera, is really helpful and really hard to capture because it's not really clinical data. It's not genomic data. And yet I fear a lot of times that we're attributing a lot to the data we have without appropriate recognition of the data we don't have, which is a lot of that data. And I think it's entirely possible that we're attributing some things worsening X, Y, and Z to our ability just to detect a difference among, let's let's say, their genomic makeup. But in reality, we're, we're missing a lot of data on the social environment that really does influence access to care, et cetera, et cetera. And I think those things are really important for us to ha- build more robust biobanks that are really data and biobanks that include data beyond traditional clinical data and includes a lot of this social and environmental data that, that I think is really important to sepsis as well as a large number of other conditions. Great points, Lauren. I think the other thing is that there's something called the All of Us study. I'm not sure if you guys heard of it, but they actually did collect a lot of that data and got genomic material as well. And so I think it has something like a million people in it, NIH, or that was their goal was to have a million people in it. And just some of the earlier studies are now coming out. I think the challenge kind of to your point, Rob, is that you're going to have baseline genetic material, but you're not going to have sepsis admission material, right? So so you'll understand the genome of those patients, right? Because they'll be sequenced at baseline. And then you'll see their risk factors and you could follow them for sepsis, but you won't have anything from when they're admitted. But but that's okay too, because it's still information. I think the place where we get to where we have sort of both, right? The social determinants and some of the other genomic data, both at, at sort of at baseline and when people are sick would be really informative. And so but anyway, it, do, it does exist. It's just, it's not that common. There are several global initiatives to diversifying the available sequence genomic data because this is such a problem. I'm a machine learning person. I adore machine learning, but I will say that one thing it can do 
very easily is amplified bias. And it's very hard to detect that that's happening. And so by making sure that we are collecting diverse set of data, really focusing on getting the U.S. as a whole and the globe as a whole, getting everyone represented in that data, it makes it better for everybody. And it especially makes it better for people who are, you know, do tend to get left behind or fall through the cracks on this kinds of studies. So I think it is so incredibly important. And I really love all of these people who are going around getting samples from people who maybe are not comfortable participating in study. There's a whole lot of reasons for why that is. But for me, it makes the world of a difference in what I can do. So, yeah. Yeah, I think this is a burgeoning frontier and, you know, not just sepsis, but all research is kind of recognizing some of these factors that maybe have not been treated with the same degree of rigor and attention as some of the biologic stuff. And, you know, it, right, it, it's as everybody said, I think it's challenging genetic differences, but even, you know, again, like how these things differ regionally. You know, there's a group at Stanford that did some sort of untargeted metabolomics and they found a really high proportion of a specific lipid in their septic patients. And and we actually have some similar data that we're working on writing up, but it's like a sort of demographically loose demographics, you know, age, gender kind of looks similar, but we found markedly different lipids elevated. And, you know, is there's right. Is that genetics? Is that different environment? Is that different diet, right? Like people in Detroit probably eat different things, maybe different things from people in California. So in any case, I think we're kind of running it short on time here. So this has been a really great discussion. I think we've kind of touched on some really cool stuff. You guys are doing some great research. The genomic aspect is is really interesting as it kind of, I think, overlaps with a lot of the work in sepsis that Fahim and Lauren are working on. So with that, I think we'll wrap. And I want to thank you guys again for taking time out of your day to join us on these two episodes. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. 